My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he had sat down, his disciples came to him. He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you are insulted and persecuted, and they utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Are you blessed? Just asking that question can trigger a wide variety of responses and mean a lot of different things to people. A quick Google search of headlines can illustrate what I mean. Despite devastating loss after tornado, Pasadena neighbors say they're blessed. Basketball coach on his 400th win says, I've been blessed. Professional athlete blessed with a baby girl. Florida Derby champ says he's blessed with a trio of runners in upcoming horse race. The awe and reverence obviously runs quite a scale of different extremes from someone who's thankful that they have survived a natural disaster as opposed to someone grateful for his racing horses. But you get the sense of people using that term blessed to describe a sense of gratitude for things that are out of a person's control. And we might have some Catholic guilt kick in just at that question, are you blessed, instinctively making us answer, of course I am, because we want to answer correctly. And we know that on a particular level that there's so much to be grateful for, things that we maybe take for granted or forget to acknowledge over time. Yes, we're blessed, we can quickly answer. But I think that this gospel is meant to kind of give us a moment to pause And just to think about, what does it really mean to be blessed? How does Jesus define it? If you're like me, hearing the Beatitudes, you quickly think of all the groups of those struggling in the world that Jesus identifies with. That he's in solidarity with those who are poor, those who mourn, those who are persecuted. 
And that's what makes them blessed, that, that God has noticed them, that their predicaments are not punishments from God, that he's drawing near to them in their need, which is all very true. But if we're not careful, that can kind of leave the impression that if you're not suffering, then you're not blessed, which can lead to all kinds of really twisted misunderstandings and really just awful theology. Instead, can we hear in these opening sentences to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount an invitation that Jesus is calling us to be blessed? I'm embarrassed that for, for most of my life, I never saw this as, as Jesus giving us like a ladder to climb. That there is something that connects each of these eight Beatitudes, one to the other, and all of them makes us citizens in the kingdom of heaven. So to explain that the poor in spirit isn't simply talking about those who are physically poor, but when, when someone knows that they didn't will themselves into being, that this breath that they breathe, that this life that they live is a gift from God. They have no claim on it and they have no claim on God. There's no entitlement. They didn't deserve anything. But remarkably, God in his goodness He's created them. He knows them. He loves them. And when they accept that truth, that's what makes them poor in spirit because they know they have, they have nothing on their own. They have nothing to offer. And then that's what makes them mourn. They mourn all the ways that they've used things and ways to numb and distract themselves and fool themselves from that reality of being poor in spirit. They're mourning how often they've settled for being citizens of this broken world and pursued greatness here rather than trying to live as a heavenly citizen. And God comforts them in that mourning by offering, their, offering them his forgiveness, which makes them meek. They humbly acknowledge that anything that they have is by God's grace. They can't boast of their greatness recognizing that all, ultimately, it all comes from God. And that's what makes them hunger and thirst for righteousness. It, there's this awareness that I'm a weak human being. That even as they're climbing this ladder, they know that they're still tempted by, by people and things and all kinds of broken desires. But they can continue to choose to remain fixed on this call from Jesus to, to reject those things and to keep climbing, to not give in to them, but just to to keep climbing. And that's what also makes them merciful because they can empathize with others who are struggling in their faith journeys. They, they know the temptation. They know the weakness of being a fellow human being as they struggle to make those right choices to follow Jesus. And that in turn makes them merciful to others. And all those steps begin to make one clean of heart because they see the fleeting nature of all the things of this world, and they don't feel that attachment or even the desire for them anymore. Which makes becoming a peacemaker just logical because they see all the absurdity of people fighting over temporal goods and these lusts and these disordered passions that cause so much strife, whether it's among nations or far closer to home. And then ultimately, after taking all these steps, though, they might be surprised to find 
They're being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. But Jesus makes it clear that following him, the world's going to hate it. They're going to hate you for doing it. Because following the way of God is countercultural. It's, it's swimming upstream. And when you're doing that, it's at first, it's annoying to those who aren't. But inevitably, it becomes an obstacle to them because you're not cooperating with their goals or their desires of the powers of the earth. And the more I sat with this and just reflected on it, the more kind of eye-popping it was for me that Jesus is not simply identifying groups of people who are blessed, but he's calling us to desire to be blessed ourselves. And that it is accessible to every one of us right here where we are that it's meant for every one of us to use as a point of reflection whether we are truly blessed in the eyes of Jesus and whether we're pursuing life as a citizen of heaven as he lays out. So I went through this almost as a, as a personal reflection for myself. And I started when I'm like, I know I have my fears. I have my inadequacies, my faults, my failures. I can overthink them. And that could lead me to believe all kinds of lies about myself. I'm not as smart as that priest. I'm not as holy as that nun. I'm not as eloquent or creative as that guy. I'm not as talented or popular or liked as that person. And on and on and on. And none of those thoughts make me a better person. And they definitely don't make me a better disciple or priest. Instead, they cause distress and anxiety. And they undermine what God has and is and wants to do with and through me. But when I can silence all that, when I can stop all that noise and stop those comparisons with others and try just to be clear and focused that I want to honor the Lord, I want to follow him, I want to serve him, I want to love him, it's then that I start climbing that ladder that Jesus gives us that I recognize I'm poor in spirit. And that makes me embarrassed about all the times that I've tried to do things my own way, maniacally focusing on, on controlling things, wasting time obsessing in my, my quest for perfection, or letting my pride and ego get in the way. But that's not meant for me to simply just stop and wallow in. God calls me out of that, and that's why I have to repent, and I mourn that. And the Lord comforts me by offering me his forgiveness. And when I can internalize these truths about myself and what God initiates and what he's doing, I become more comfortable in my own skin. That causes me to be meek because I realize I don't have to promote myself. I don't have to diminish someone else in order to feel noticed or important or worthy. I can rejoice in being God's beloved son and being called to share in his priesthood of Jesus Christ. And that leads me to remember holiness is not something I possess. We never graduate or get a holiness degree. My ordination day was not the day I was being licensed in holiness. I can guarantee you that. I have to continue to want to be holy. I have to constantly choose to pursue it. And that's why I need constant penance. It's why I need to constantly fast. So that I'm always mindful of that, that need to hunger and thirst for righteousness.
And those steps call me not to forget how hard it is for everyone to follow Jesus in our time. Knowing how I failed, knowing how I'm tempted, knowing how easy it is to fall for the lies of the devil, to look for loopholes and justifications for any and everything, I can't help but empathize with those who are going through the same things. And that's why I, I try to explain to people that when they come to confession, that's as humbling a thing for me as a priest to hear someone's confession as it is for someone else. Just knowing how hard your life journey can be and how hard this world can be, how seemingly easy it is we can fall into temptation and sin. I can't help but, but hear and see myself and other people's struggles and empathize and understand that need to be merciful. And the more I'm mindful of each of these steps, the more things kind of change my perception of everything. I never imagined it would be possible to say that I was even in the vicinity of being clean of heart. It always seemed like something that was reserved for to like martyrs or the most innocent of individuals, like, like children who become canonized saints. But when you recognize that clean of heart isn't reserved just for those saints, it's about not obsessing about what's fleeting, especially at the expense of what isn't. For example, a concrete example for myself that I shared not too long ago was when I started to really realize my former obsession of being a rabid New York Yankee fan. I used to have a whole assortment of collectibles, signed baseballs and bats and cards. I had gear, I had magazines, I had books, and all kinds of stuff. And not that any of those things are sinful. I don't want that to be the impression or anyone to walk out of here thinking that. But when I felt myself more intentional and focused on pursuing Jesus and what really mattered... I started to feel more and more embarrassed by how much time and space those things had taken up in my life. That started to happen for me when the Yankees beat the Phillies in, in 2009 in the World Series. The excitement, the exuberance, and how fleeting it was. The next day, I'm listening to, to sports radio, I'm in the car, and the guys are all talking about Who's going to return to the team next year? Who might leave? Will they be able to repeat and do this thing all over again next year? And I, I got angry. I started yelling at the radio. I'm like, stop. You know how much time and energy it took for us to get to this point? And we're already talking about next year. And then I remembered, oh, I hadn't played a single game. <laughs> I'm not even remotely athletically inclined to be able to do so if I wanted to. So all this time and energy and watching and following every game all season... What did it really mean in the grand scheme of life? And that's when it, it started to stop mattering so much to the point that I don't even really know who's on the team anymore. And as silly as a, an example as that was and is, I never really realized how that would make me see fans from rival teams as enemies. But I used to tell people that I, I would go on a band of all things Boston from spring training through the end of the season. So that meant no Boston market, no, no Boston cream pie donuts from Dunkin' Donuts, no Sam Adams beer even, which I really liked their winter lager, which was always difficult, or the summer ale, I really 
missed that during the summers. And I only wish I could say that I was joking, but I honestly would refrain from all of it. I should have been that serious about refraining from meat on Fridays through Lent and all. But anyway, I seriously was rejecting those things, not as a superstition, but somehow I was punishing Boston by rejecting those things just because of the Red Sox. And now I see how in a very, well, not small way, because it's obviously a lot bigger than I thought it was. But anyway, the attachments to the things of this world can even make you jokingly treat someone as an enemy. That it helps you to kind of embrace that idea of division and discord rather than looking for ways of being a peacemaker who only finds their true joy in God. And that brings us to that, that final point of being persecuted. We live in a, a culture and a society that tries to mock even the suggestion of that for us as Christians. Someone pointed out to me that Wikipedia has this posting for Christian persecution complex. I guarantee some of your professors buy into this where they say that, that they define it as the belief or attitude or worldview that Christian values and Christians are being oppressed by social groups and governments. They conveniently ignore that throughout the world, more Christians are persecuted and martyred right now simply for trying to go to Mass or being in a Bible study or even identifying themselves as Christian than at any time in our 2,000-plus year history. They're also dismissing the fact that right here in the United States, in the last two years, close to 300 churches have been vandalized through arson, broken stained glass windows, decapitated statues, satanic graffiti scrawled all over the church, just for professing Christian values and beliefs, like saying, life begins at conception, and that life should be cherished and protected. Or that God made humanity male and female, and that there are only two genders. Or that marriage is between a man and a woman. Or a whole host of other examples that will quickly get you canceled for daring to go against the mainstream narrative. Jesus gives us this, this path to holiness, calling each and every one of us to use the Beatitudes as our guide out of the brokenness of our sinful world and to experience the joy of living as a citizen of heaven right here and right now. It's hard work. And it's something that we're going to continue to struggle with till the day we die. But as we engage in that struggle, as we strive with each and every step of that ladder, the saints who left their witness that it's possible they're praying for us, and they're, they're cheering us on. The Lord continues to pour out his Holy Spirit into our hearts, and that gives us the graces we need to keep persevering. And Jesus is there with us each and every step of the way, constantly reminding us of God our Father who loves us, who has loved us for all eternity, and wants all eternity with us, with him. And for us to just focus on all these truths as the only thing that ultimately matters. Are we blessed? Yes, indeed. <laughs>